Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. morning we continue our series in, in Zechariah, and uh, just to kind of go back to last week, we kind of introduced the book and, and began at that point of, of seeing that, that where Israel was and what was going on in, in, in their world at that time was that, that God had been angry, and in verse 2 of chapter 1 in Zechariah, God says that he's, he's been angry with his people. And we, we talked about how God's anger is different than ours. And I just wanted to kind of review that briefly this morning and give another example of, of how, why what I said last week about God's anger is absolutely true. That God's anger is restorative in its nature and it's so different than our anger. Um, just to kind, of, to kind of support that again is in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah, You've got Jonah, God's prophet, and, and God talks to Jonah, and he tells Jonah he wants to go to this, this city, the, the capital of Assyria, to, to Nineveh, and let them know that God, because of their wickedness, God is going to destroy their entire city and all the people in it. And, and we know the story of Jonah. Jonah goes, and, and he doesn't want to go, so he goes the opposite direction. He gets on a boat, um, obviously the safest place to run from anything, a boat, um, we learned that from the Titanic. And so, um, and so he goes on a boat and he goes the opposite direction and, you know, the fish and all that stuff. And he eventually goes to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh and he tells the Ninevites that God is going to destroy them because of their wickedness. He doesn't give them options, does he? He just says God's going to destroy Nineveh. And, and the king and the people of Nineveh, start, they fall on their faces in humility before God and repent. And they say, they ask for forgiveness. And God doesn't destroy Nineveh. That wasn't even an option. God was angry with Nineveh. He didn't say, if you repent, I won't do it, but they repented and God didn't destroy him. And so Jonah, you fast forward to the end of the book and and Jonah is in the desert and he's angry and he's upset and he's feeling pretty bad about himself and and he finally verbalizes why he's so angry with God. And this is what Jonah says. He says, I knew that if I went to Nineveh, and I told them you were going to destroy them. And if they repented, I know for a fact how you work and your anger works. And that you are, in essence, a restorative God. He said, I knew if I went there and they repented, you wouldn't destroy them. And I didn't want to give them that chance. See, Jonah knew the anger of God. That it was restorative in its nature. And, and it's, it's so funny that, that one of the more rebellious prophets in the Old Testament had such great theology about God's anger, yet we get so far off and we think, God's angry, he must want to punish me. He must, be, he must not want to see me. And, and yet Jonah says, I knew this would happen because I understand your anger. And I understand that your anger at its very core is restorative. And so again, hopefully... 
that helps us as we process this idea in our relationship with God and how God works in and through us. Um, so we catch up in, in verse 7 of, of chapter 1 in Zechariah. So you can turn to Zechariah. We're, we're in chapter 1. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. So hopefully I've got enough stuff that's surrounding us that, that we can all kind of keep up together and, and stay engaged. Um, but, but basically three months after this initial moment where God speaks to Zechariah in chapter 1, 1 through 6, three months later in, in verse 7, Zechariah kind of gets ready for bed one night, and he's tired, he's had a long day, and uh, he, he kind of gets in bed and he goes to sleep. And, and God gives him during this one night eight visions or dreams throughout this, this one night. Now, if you, if you know anything about, I mean, we all, we all have dreams, don't we? We all dream. Some of us remember our dreams. Some of us can't remember our dreams. Some of us have dreams about our spouses and are angry the next two weeks with them. But, <laughs> but that's not important. But, but we all have dreams, and, and they're, they're crazy, right? Um, in fact, dreams have always been of in particular interest for mankind over the years. And, and so I kind of thought to myself, you know what? I wonder if... Among our staff here at Crosspoint, I wonder if anybody has some good dream stories to share. So I sent an email out at the beginning of the week, and I asked for some dreams of our staff that they can remember and have had. So I want to share a few of those with you as we get into this. Um, there we go. It's just a pro. We got to set the context. So a one staff person says, uh, "I was walking at the mall." and I would get stuck into the end of the escalator and there would be an underworld with monsters and bad people. I would be running away from them and hiding. I would have this dream over and over and would always remember the dream when I woke up. And this person on staff, they said, to this day, I jump over the end of the escalator. <laughs> I'm not sure what God was communicating in that dream, if he was, but... But then um, we have another, another staff person who said, um, I was at home and the electrical wires had fallen down on my street. I remember thinking we should call Sean Hewlin because he would know what to do. <laughs> then I was kind of like hovering over my street like a drone and I could see all around and there was a huge lake between our house and downtown. I could see a big airplane not too high in the air to the east and a cruise ship and other small boats in the water. I could hear sirens, and I knew that something big was happening, and everyone was speeding in the direction of Riverbank. <laughs> I knew we had to get out, but didn't know how or why. Then I saw the plane go down, not crash, but set itself down where I knew there was no runway. All of a sudden, the boats turned around and sped the opposite direction, and everything with sirens turned around and sped the other way. That sounds a little like a revelation, doesn't it? I don't know. That, that's... It's, um, another person uh, responded this way. They said, I was in the schoolyard of my elementary school and would always be dressed in purple clothes. Not sure the significance of that. While playing in the schoolyard, school an alarm would sound, and then all of a sudden, a large whale would appear on the schoolyard. It chased me all over and is evil looking. It is trying to catch me and eat me. And that was it. Um, so this, another person on staff said, uh, I remember having a dream when I was really sick. I went to school one day and a bunch of Russians came to invade <laughs> and people were getting shot and no one knew what to do. All of a sudden, Snoopy came flying in on his doghouse plane thing and started wiping out the Russians and he saved the day. 
I remember waking up with a crazy fever and holding tightly onto my stuffed stoopy. To that dream, I would just have one thing to say, and that's Wolverines! Anyway, if you get that, we can hang out. Um, if you don't, that's okay. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, and then the last dream that I, that I got, uh, which, which was a pretty good one, um, kind of relatable here Sunday morning, um, if you have children in, in um, children's ministry. Um, first, as I was walking along with a couple of people that I can't quite remember, maybe Brett was there, but I'm not sure. Something happened. Again, the details aren't clear, but I managed to help out one of the local homeless guys named Danny. I recognize him immediately because I see him downtown all the time. As a thank you for whatever I had done, Danny gave me a box. It was clearly intended as a present, but it wasn't wrapped, so I hesitate to call it one. I never at any point in my dream remember feeling like it was intended to be mean or malicious, but the box was full of spiders. The spiders were all different sizes, but the size had more to do with their leg span than their, than their actual body. They were really quick and began darting all over the room I was in. As I looked around and began trying to frantically kill all the spiders, I remember becoming aware of the fact that I was in one of the ARC Sunday school rooms. I remember panicking because the spiders were so fast and some so small that I knew there was no way I'd be able to get rid of all of them. I knew that there was no way that all of the spiders would be gone before Sunday when there was going to be a bunch of kids in the room. Those are the kind of dreams that our staff has. Um, and I don't know if that encourages you or makes you think, I should find another church. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's so interesting that we have these weird dreams. And, and so y- when you think of that, you know, you wake up and sometimes you're confused, sometimes you're worried, sometimes you're upset. But, but it's so interesting because, because Zechariah went to bed one night and experienced a night of very much divinely directed dreaming. We read in Hebrews where, where, where the author talks about the different ways that God has communicated to his people in the past. And one of the things he talks about throughout the Old Testament is God chose to talk to his people through dreams and visions. But then he says, but in the last days, he's spoken to us through his son as, as he gave Jesus, which that all connects here in this passage actually pretty well. But, but here for Zechariah, God communicated to him in, in some divinely directed dreaming. Why? Because God wanted to communicate a message of hope to his people then and for now. And, and, and I guess God is creative and he doesn't do anything boring, does he? <laughs> and so he does this. And so, so God's big plan is a plan of forgiveness, restoration, and ultimate peace. And, and I think that there's, there's a couple things that we need to understand as we walk into this series of, of, of dreams that, that, uh, that, that, that God gives to Zechariah to communicate to the people. First of all, there's a prerequisite for experiencing the spiritual blessings revealed in these visions is that, is that the, per, the people who will experience those things have to have a genuine and wholehearted turning to the Lord. That's one of the big themes of Zechariah is to return to God. He says, return to me. And that offer, that calling is not just for his people, but is for all people. All people that he created with his image, all imagers to return to him. And so one of those is that we, we, we turn to the Lord wholeheartedly and genuinely. And the second thing we need to understand about these visions is that God always, always, regardless of where we are in life, God will always give us hope even in our most difficult times. That God will do that. Um, 
up on the screen, there's going to be, there's going to be a, a, a picture of kind of how these dreams kind of are set up. It's, it's a great illustration to kind of get a mental image as we walk into this. There, there's a technical structure of, of, uh, of, of Zechariah's dream sequence here in this book. And um, it's actually technically called, it's a chiastic structure, which means that the first, if you, if you go through the eight visions, the eight dreams, if you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and if you're, if you're kind of to recognize how they're related to each other, is a chiastic structure is A, B, C, D, and then it starts over again, D, C, B, A. So the first dream that he has, the first vision is A, and the eighth vision is also A. So those are connected with each other. The second vision is connected with the seventh vision, the third and the sixth and the fourth and the fifth. And, and, and so what you see in this structure is that typically that middle part where it kind of goes A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, those, when you get to the Ds, that's kind of the part of the climactic piece of, of what God is trying to communicate in that. And so that's nerdy technical stuff. And if you like that, great. If that just, you're kind of like, I didn't get that. That's okay because we have pictures. And so, um, so that kind of gives you the idea. And again, we took this from the Bible Project, which is a, a great resource. I've talked to a couple people who actually looked, on, looked at that online this week and they watched the Zechariah video, which gave a great overview of the book. Um, super helpful, but we kind of took this and blew this up so that we would kind of get an idea. And so, so, so just to kind of see a visual of how these come together. And so Zechariah has a long night of these God-directed visions. And, and so, and so, so what, what we're going to look at today, and, and I'm not going to read through everything because we're going from chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through chapter 6. And so I'm not going to read all the scripture. You can read it on your own, and there's some interesting and confusing and weird stuff in there. But I'm just going to walk through each vision and, and try and help us have a, a general grasp of what God's communicating in that vision. So here we go. Vision 1 starts in chapter 1, verse 7, and it goes through verse 17. And uh, what you have in, in, in vision one, it, the, the image that, that, that Zechariah sees is a horse and a rider. In fact, there's, there's multiple uh, horses and riders in, in this vision that he sees at the beginning, at the front end of this in this first vision. And to give you an idea of really what God's trying to communicate through this first vision as you read it about these horses and they're riding and, and God's dealing with things, um, that God still sees and he loves his people and he will restore them. Because where Israel is at this point is they are wondering, does God care about us? Is God really going to, to, make, uh, to make these things that he's promised happen? Does God remember us? Does God see us? Is God still aware of us? And so, and so in this first vision, God basically is saying to Zechariah, tell the people that I see and love my people and I will restore them, that there still is hope. And, and it's interesting because, because in, this, in this vision, uh, it's, it's this, this horse and rider, and, and there's these others that are kind of going out and about around all over the land. And, and, and what, what God is saying, because, because God was angry with his people because of their disobedience and their rebellion. But remember, his anger is restorative. And so, so the only way that God could get his people's attention and get them to, to begin to shift from their ways to God's ways 
was to allow them to go into exile and God would use a, a, a foreign nation to bring them under, under their, their yoke and, and their, their weight and their burden. And so God was angry with his people and used the other nations to bring their attention back to God. But in doing so, the other nations went too far. And that's what he's saying in this vision is that they went too far. They went beyond the boundaries that God had set for them to bring his people back to, back to him, to help his people to return to him. It's kind of like, which, and, and I don't quite have my head, I, don't, I haven't really grasped this totally, but it's interesting that in, in human events and in human history, God will use those who do not recognize him as God or love him to do, to accomplish his purposes. But God always sets boundaries and limits, and when those exceed their limits, then they are under God's judgment and wrath. And so what God's saying in vision one is that those who oppressed Israel, who went beyond God's loving discipline for his people, those oppressors, they will not get away with it, and they will be dealt with. In fact, he says in in the vision, he says, I was angry a little bit, but they took it too far. And, and God says that he is jealous for his people. And this isn't the, the, the toxic kind of jealousy, but this is the, the jealousy that, that has to do with, with loving action and care and compassion for those that you are jealous for. And so it says that God is jealous and, and that God has, has, his intent was to chastise Israel, but not reject Israel. And so, and so the tool of God's discipline that went too far and, and, and so God comes full circle and he says, I will deal with them. And, and, and look at chapter one, verses 14 and 15. In verses 14 and 15, look, what, here's, what, here's what, it's interesting in, in, in Zechariah's dreams and visions, he's able to interact and he's able to, to talk with and ask questions. And so here in verses 14 and 15 of chapter one in the first vision, he says, so the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. In other words, these nations God is angry with because they're at ease. They're, they're kind of like laid back and they're saying, look, you know, we're, we're abusing all kinds of people. We're oppressing people and we're at ease. Our oppression of others is giving us ease. And so God is angry with them. But remember, even God's anger with the nations, what is his goal? Restoration, like Nineveh. And so it says, it says, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. So then he follows up and he says, therefore says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And in verse 17, he says, my cities again shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord again will comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And, and so in this first vision, what, what God is communicating is that he does love his people and that, and that, and that even though we see wrong around us and, and inequity and we see oppression and we see evil 
that that won't last forever. See, this vision is not just simply for, for, for the encouragement of the people in Israel, but it is for us to remind us that, that the stuff that we see around us, the evil and the oppression and the hurt, that won't last because God will deal with those. And his goal is restoration, but see, if they don't respond, he will deal with them, which we see in another vision. And so the first vision he has, and I don't know how long that was, but he sees God making, God making this, this, this statement to his people that he loves them, he sees them, and he will right the wrongs. The second vision, which starts in verse 18, uh, the, the, kind of the, the image that we see in this is this horn and, and it's interesting because a horn, the, the, the symbol of a horn, it, it communicates strength and aggression and pride. And so you've got this horn, and, and it's just a few verses, 18 through 21, and, and really what God is saying to his people in this vision through Zechariah is that God will defeat all competing forces, both physical and spiritual, that God is above and over all of those things. And, and, so, and so what he says is so interesting. And again, he uses this, this illustration, this symbol of a horn, which again is strength and aggression and pride. And, and what, it, what it says, what he says here is, is, he says, I saw these four horns and these horns, he says, are the horns that scattered Judah. These are the nations or, or, or the people that God used in his anger to discipline and draw his people back to him with the ultimate, ultimate vision of restoration. But then, then it says that there was these craftsmen that, that, that Zechariah saw. And, and, and it says, before that, it says these four horns. And, and it could be, to some, to some scholars, it could be the nations of Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, and Persia, which were some of the main enemies of Israel throughout those years. But probably the more likely understanding is, it, is the idea of completeness. Four has to do with the idea of completeness. Later, we'll hear about the four winds of the earth or the four corners of the earth and, 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 and the four horse riders. There's this idea in scripture, especially in prophecy, that, that four is, is, is also associated with the idea of completeness. But, but, but the reality is it says that these four horns had scattered Judah. But it says he sees these craftsmen who are going to take care of the horns, who are going to deal with the horns. And so it, what, what, what basically it's saying is that God will defeat all competing forces. They can't defeat God. And, and, and in, in, verse, in verse 21, the last verse of this vision, it says... It says, and, then, and I said, what are these coming to do? What are these craftsmen coming to do? What are they going to do about these, these horns that have, that, have, that have defeated and, and uh, oppressed Israel? And the angel said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come, these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it because they went too far. And so then we come to the third vision, the third vision, which starts in chapter two. And the symbol of that, as you, as you read through that vision, it talks about someone came to measure 
Jerusalem. And so kind of the idea of, of a tape measure that, and really the interpretation, what God's trying to communicate with his people is that God's people will number more and be totally safe because of his presence. As we talk through this, I want you to catch the message that is for us today. That, that yeah, there's, there's things in our life, there's horns that have come against us. Sometimes they're to discipline us and bring us back to return to God. Sometimes they're things we, we haven't brought on to ourselves, but know that God is above and beyond those things. And, and, and here in Vision 3, we see that, 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 that there's this picture of the city of Jerusalem and, and they're measuring how big it is. And it says they're, they're, and typically if you're measuring a city, you're measuring it in that, in that day and age to, to figure out how much material you need for the walls to, to defend that city. But it's interesting because in the vision, it says that the city won't need a wall, even though it's so big. They say it'll be so big. In the vision, Zechariah is told that the city will be too big and the Lord himself, it says, will be their wall of fire. That God's presence is greater and better than any fortification that the people of Israel can make. And I need you to know this morning, one of the insights in, 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 this, in this part of the vision, in vision three, is that God is greater than anything we can devise to protect us. And that there is a significance in God's dwelling with us. That, that whatever it is that you, you face, whatever it is that threatens you, know that God's very present, that he promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that his presence is key and that he will dwell. It says that he will dwell in the city and, and it's so cool because that kind of casts a, a vision forward in the, in the gospel of John where, where John writes, and the word became flesh and what dwelt with us. That's the same language that, that is used in the vision of Zechariah, that God dwelt in the city of Jerusalem. That we have that same, that same word, that same spirit dwelling in us, not just in our city, but in us. And, and that we can recognize that God will care for us. In, in, ver, in, in chapter two, verses 10 and 11, which kind of give you a, a great picture of, of this vision, it says, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Listen to this. Not only will God dwell in, in his chosen people, but it says, and many nations, the very nations that God has judged. He says, and many nations will come, and they will, be be they will benefit, and they will join themselves to the Lord, and they will become my people. Like what an incredible thing that God is not just about a single group of people, but he's about all people, all of those who bear his image. And, and so what a cool thing in this, in this vision that, that God sees this, this protection of his presence and that through that he will draw many nations. Vision four, starting in chapter three. The image is, is of a high priestly figure. And if you remember the structure, we've done the first, second, and third vision, and the vision four and five are connected to each other, and they're kind of a key climax to the visions. And so the, 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 the image is a high priestly figure. 
And what God is saying is that God will send a great high priest to cleanse them and us from sin. See, what what we see is there's this priest, there's this high priest in Jerusalem at this time named Joshua. And and what what, it's so interesting what it says in the text. It says in verse one in chapter three, it says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Again, Travis mentioned this when he was preaching in one of his sermons about the image of God, that, that in this, what, what it says is, if you're to read it as, as the Hebrew is written, it, it says, and the Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan being very much translated as the accuser or an accuser. And so you've got this accuser, the Satan, who is accusing Joshua of sin. And you know what's interesting? He's right. Later in this vision, it says that, that, that Zechariah saw these dirty clothes, which represented Joshua's sin. And the accuser was right that Joshua is sinful and he's not worthy. But I love what God does in this vision. The Lord said to the accuser, to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And so then God says to the angels in the vision, and he says, bring the high priest new clothes. See, the high priest doesn't clean himself off. (laughs) He doesn't pull himself up, dust himself off. God says, I will give you new clean clothes. And it is that symbolism and imagery of how God will cleanse his people. He is the forgiver of sins. He gives new clothes. And then it says, and the branch will come. And the branch is a messianic title. So who's God talking about in this vision? Not just the high priest, is he? He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus, God in the flesh. Look at at verses eight and nine in chapter three. It says, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave his inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And listen to this. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What single day do you think that is? The day that Jesus was crucified. I don't don't think Zechariah knew that, but we do, don't we? How could God wipe away all of our sins in a single day? It's by the giving, it's the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus gave his life, God wiped away all of our sins in a single day. What a a vision and a message of hope. Vision five, which is connected to four. So you had a high priest as the focus of five, right? Or four. And in vision five, you've got a candle holder. And, and the, the, image, the interpretation is that Israel will become a light to the nations under the Messiah, the king priest who dwells among them. So you've got a priest in vision four, and then in vision five, you've got this candle holder, which, which is symbolizing the, the impact, the light, the, the lighting, the darkness, that everyone will see the light that God gives 
that nothing will be hidden from God's view and no nation will miss the light of God through his people. And he says later, he says, he says that, that all will be accomplished not by how skillful or powerful or wise or intelligent mankind is, but it'll be done through the spirit of God. That God will do this. You see, it's, it's so interesting in, in this vision it talks about this, this lampstand and this, these candles, and, but, it, but it talks about this guy, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, who was a builder. And he was one of the guys who rebuilt the temple. And he was a, he was a civic official. He was like the mayor or the governor. Symbolizes the political power or the king. And so remember in, in vision four, you had a priest and in vision five, you have a king. Kings and priests aren't the same people, right? <laughs> they're different roles, they're different functions, they're different titles. But, but what God is saying is that there will come a day, and we'll come back to this at the very end of his visions. Right before Zechariah wakes up, God wraps everything up and talks about a priest king. A priest king who, who not only has the power to forgive sins, but the authority to rule the universe. And, and so it's so interesting that the, the, the verse that really sticks out in, the, in this is, is, is in chapter four, verses six and seven. Verses six and seven, here's, here's what God says to, to Zechariah. He says, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. That, that you've got this guy, Zerubbabel, in a mountain. How could, a, how could just a single person, by a sheer force of strength, level a mountain? And God says, no, 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 not by, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit will I accomplish all of these things. Vision six is this image of a scroll that is flying open over the land. And so it's kind of like maybe like a flyer. Um, I don't know, you've probably seen these flyers everywhere in Modesto. But, but, but um, you know, you're like a flyer that you can read that's flying over and everyone can see what's on it. If that flyer was flying over, everyone would know that there's a lost dog. But he says that there's this scroll that's flying all over. And on the scroll, rather than a reward for a missing dog, it is the word of the Lord, the law of God. So that everyone in the land, the whole, the whole world can see God's word and his law to his people. And, and so really the interpretation, what God's saying is that those who are disobedient to God's law and stopping and hindering God's work will be judged and they will be sentenced. Again, God's desire in this is restoration. But we have to respond. And so the scroll is the judgment on, on those who do evil throughout the land. And it's a judgment for those who refuse to return to the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 5, 4. In verse 4 of chapter 5, it says... Uh, I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. In other words, that the word of God is righteous, and sin and evil cannot stand up to the word of God, and that, and that, that the word of God will overcome the evil and the sin in the world. 
The next vision, vision seven, it is a basket with a lid. And, and in this vision, the, the idea is that God says that, that he will remove sin and purify God's people. Again, not that we will purify ourselves, but that God will remove the sin from us. Again, looking forward to Christ. And that he will purify us. And so while, while vision six is about judgment, seven is about purifying those who repent and return to the Lord. And so in, in this vision, it, it talks about a woman is in the basket and her name is wickedness. And we just need to recognize right now, Scripture's not saying that women are wicked. Um, oftentimes, Scripture will use women to personify different things. And this, not only is, is the woman in the back, back, uh, basket uh, a symbol of wickedness, but there's two women who are symbols of God's spirit of purification and grace. In Proverbs, we see this, where, where wisdom is called a woman. Uh, wisdom is personified as a woman. Her, it, it, it uses that feminine, the feminine um, description. And so, and so here, what we see here is, is God removing the sin from his people and purifying them. It's interesting, it talks about a stork, in this vision. And here's what's really interesting about the stork is you read this particular vision. The, the word that we see translated as stork, the same Hebrew word, root, is used for steadfast love. And so God chooses the stork imagery in this as a cleansing sign of his grace and his steadfast love for his people. Look at verses six. Look at verse six in uh, chapter five. Um, God says, uh, and I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the, le the laden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the la laden weight on its opening and lifted. And these, these uh, women came forward who, who had wind beneath their wings and they, they removed it. And the stork comes to show God's steadfast love for his people. And then the eighth vision is, is you see coming back again relating to the first vision of a, of a, of a rider on a horse, but now it's, it's a person in a chariot being pulled by a horse. And the, and the understanding is that God will fully and finally overcome evil and all who do not recognize him as the Lord of hosts and then the world will be at rest. You see, in the first vision, it showed the nations were at ease and happy with themselves. And God was angry. But in the eighth vision, we see God is at rest and the nations are judged. It says that, that these, these, these chariots will go to the four corners of the earth, that the idea of, of completeness, they will cover all the earth, the four corners of the earth. The completeness of God's rule. And it says, and here's what's super interesting about this, and I love this, it's kind of nerdy, but it says it doesn't really specify any of the directions except the north. And, and, and it says, and, and kind of the, the, the verse that I, that, that I kind of catch up with is, is verse, verse eight. And he says in verse eight, then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Here's what you need to understand about that, talking about the north country. All of Israel's enemies came from the north. And not only that, 
But, but if you were there, you would, you would understand as one of the people presently living there that, that, the, that the, the, the false gods, the, the, the rebellious gods, those gods who are the gods of Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, those that would be, would be warring against Yahweh, they were known to have their, they were understood and believed to have their headquarters in the north. And so why is it significant that God says that the north is at rest? It, what it's saying to God's people is that God is the God above all gods, the king above all kings, and not even the headquarters of the spiritual beings that try to rebel and rule the world in spite of God's authority, they can't stand up against him and God will bring all of it at rest. They can't defend against God's power or his reign or his rule. And then finally, there's this kind of summary vision in in chapter six, verses nine through 15. And I chose for a symbol of this a cross and tomb because that's who this vision's talking about. The priest king. The interpretation here is this, that all God's work in humanity will be accomplished through the priest king, Jesus. He talks about the temple, Joshua, the priest, the purification of sins. He talks about the crown and the branch and the king, the rule and reign, and that they've come together. And it's so interesting because Zerubbabel, he mentions Zerubbabel, and this is the, the, the kingly figure in this vision, in these visions. And if you were to go to Luke chapter three and read the genealogy, Zerubbabel is in the line of David, in the line of Jesus. And so in verse 615, listen to this. God says this, and those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is in those who are far off will come and build the temple. What does that look like? Those who are far off will find Jesus. And what are we? We are the temple of God. He's talking about us because we were far off. But you and I, we are the temple of God. And this shall come to pass. What an incredible thing. As, as, as I close this morning, here's what I kind of want to leave you with. The big question that the, that the Israelites had in this time was how will all of the wrongs get righted? We're oppressed, we're damaged, we're abused, we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. How will all of the wrongs be righted? And we ask that today, don't we? We're not encouraged by the political situations in our country or around the whole world. We're not okay with the culture and the agenda that's going on around us, and we know that it's not pleasing to God. So how will everything get righted? God reveals his plan through these visions for Zechariah. And, and, and I want to read to you Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, which, which talk about this priest-king. John says, then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And and he has the name written that no one knows but himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread in the winepress of fury of the wrath of the God of Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's the reality that Zechariah understands through his visions. Jesus came the first time, and he's coming again as king over all kings, king of Israel, king of nations, and king of the universe. Until he comes again, we have the opportunity to repent and return to him and then image him to others. So the question I want to leave you with this, with this morning is this. Knowing these things are true, what do you do? What do you do with that? I want to invite the prayer team to come forward right now. And I'm going to close in prayer. And here's what I would ask you. What do you do with that, knowing this? Jesus is the king of all and he is the high priest. And if you don't know Jesus as your savior, if you haven't surrendered to Jesus, please, I, I, I implore you to come forward and meet with one of these people. And, and if, if you know Jesus, I would hope that this encouraged you to be a more accurate imager of him. I hear this statement often in our culture. That people wanna be on the right side of history. They've got that all mixed up because the right side of history is on the side that's surrendered to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning and I thank you for your love and your word and God, that you give us hope and encouragement and that God, the right side of history is to be humbly surrendered to you. And so Father, this morning I pray for those that you are working in their hearts and their minds. Holy Spirit, convict us and God, draw us to you. Help those who, who need to return to you to return to you this morning and those of us who are with you that we would become better imagers. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week.